All right, we are continuing our sermon series in the Gospel of Mark and the passage we're looking at today, Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. It's a very well-known passage where Jesus heals a paralyzed man and does a lot of other stuff as well. So it's printed in your bulletin, also should be on the screen. Hear now the word of the Lord. And when Jesus returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And Jesus was preaching the word to them. They came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when the crowd could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. When they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there, and they were questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they questioned us within themselves, said, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. So today's passage, as I reference, a very familiar passage if you've grown up in church, easy for us to say, I know it, and kind of dismiss over it, I get the high points. Um, but this is an unbelievably striking passage. It's the only time that we're told Jesus observes the faith of a group of people and as a result, spiritually and then physically heals someone else as a result of their friend's faith. And so what this gives us is a unique opportunity to consider what does saving faith, what does true, genuine saving faith actually look like? Now, why is that so important? The Bible is clear over and over and over and over again that we are saved, we are justified, we are reconciled to God and given the gift of eternal life only by faith alone, not by works in any way. Ephesians 2, Paul says this, this is following up earlier in chapter 2 when he said, remember, you were dead. A dead person can do nothing to make themselves alive. He says, it is by grace, an unmerited gift that you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It is not a result in any way, shape, or form of your works. If it was, you would have a reason to boast. We know John 3.16, famous passage, for God so loved the world, he gave his only son, that whoever believes, whoever exercises saving faith, in him should not perish but have eternal life. In Romans 3, Paul says, we hold firmly that one is justified. That's another term for being saved. One is legally declared righteous in God's sight by faith apart from any works of the law. Now, you may still be thinking, familiar passage. I know the story. I understand faith. I've grown up in church. But I want, to, I want to encourage you to not um, too quickly dismiss this away as something that you don't need. And here's why. John Piper says this, knowing from James 2.26 that there is such thing as dead faith, from James 2.19 that there's such thing as demonic faith, from 1 Corinthians 15.2 it is possible to believe in vain, from Luke 8.13 that one can believe for a while and in a time of testing 
fall away. And knowing that it is through faith we're born again and have eternal life, therefore surely we must conclude the nature of faith and its relationship to salvation is of infinite importance. Surely we must conclude that it would be an unbelievably foolish, arrogant, and potentially damnable place to think, I don't really need to observe and learn what God has to teach me about saving faith because I already have it. It should legitimately scare us that we think we believe, but we may in fact be deceived. And so as we work through this passage, there's a ton of things we could highlight about the nature of saving faith. I want to point out three specific things. First, that saving faith is noticeable. It is visible. It is not hidden. Second, that it is communal. It takes place in the context of community. And thirdly, that it is humble. That's my goal. Those are my points. I'm stating that early because I actually am going to try to stay on that outline. We had a leadership meeting. Y'all are all laughing. We had a leadership meeting earlier this week, and I got up. I'd give, I had been given my talking points, and so I, I was getting up, but I got carried away about what somebody else shared, so I started sharing personal stories, and I go, sorry, I, I'm not really following my notes. And one of our community leaders is sitting on the side, and he goes, yeah, classic. And I was like, what? So then I introduce another community group leader, Rebecca, who's so sweet. She gets up. She shares what God's been doing in her life, unbelievable and I was like emotionally choked up. She was so courageous. So I go up to her afterwards and I'm, I'm like, Rebecca, you did such a good job. That was amazing. How are you feeling? And I'm genuinely just concerned for the courage and what she put out. She goes, I hope it was okay. I didn't follow anything at all that I prepared. I just did like you and just shared. <laughs> I'm like, so I don't know if I present myself as this just like, you know, clown that's just all over the map. But I, I do prepare during the week and I have notes. I might not always follow them, but I do. And so I'm trying my best today to follow this outline. So first, saving faith is noticeable, evident, visible. This seems pretty obvious. Verse five, when Jesus saw their faith, Jesus didn't have to discern in their heart a hidden reality like he does with the scribes later, but he sees their faith that is clearly visible. Now you may be saying, well, this is an extreme story. This guy was paralyzed and his friends have to carry him and they can't get in, so they have to go up on the roof and cut a hole down. Of course, everybody in the room saw what was happening. But the Bible is very clear that this isn't a one-off situation, even if it feels extreme. That true saving faith in Jesus always leads to noticeable good works. James chapter 2. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed, lacking in daily food, and one of you says, go in peace, be warm and well-filled, or what we would say is, I hope things turn out or I'll pray for you, and we don't really mean it half the time, but you don't actually give them the things that they need for their body, what good is that type of faith? And so James says, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is just dead faith. Even Paul, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, you've been saved by grace through faith, not your own doing, it's a gift in every way, no works, you can't boast, and so just if you start thinking Paul's anti-good works, the very next verse is, you are God's workmanship. You were created in Christ Jesus for good works. God has prepared these beforehand that you should walk in them. This is always such a tricky subject because our heart so desperately wants to say, here's what I contribute to my salvation. Here's the things that I do in my life that help me justify myself comparing it to other people. And so I want to be as clear as we can possibly be. We are saved by faith alone, period. Our works do not merit salvation at all. If you think your works merit salvation, you are in a dangerous, potentially damnable spiritual condition. But hear this, the faith that saves us does not remain alone. 
that faith always leads to good works. As one commentator, Thomas Schreiner said in his book, Faith Alone, we are saved by faith alone, but not faith that is alone. Our union with Christ makes his perfection and power ours through faith, and this is living and active. Such faith always works by love and produces what Paul says in Romans 1 is the obedience of faith. And this is noticeable. This isn't like a private, hidden thing that no one else knows about. It's observable in the way that you live. This is why Jesus in Matthew 5 said to his disciples, you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but they put it on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they can see your good works and give glory not to you as being some great person, but give glory to your Father that is in heaven. In other words, your works should, should be so radical and countercultural that the only explanation people can have is um, this person must belong to Jesus, the King of grace and mercy. I have no other way to characterize the way they live their life. I know that y'all can easily dismiss me for not staying on my outlines or being hyperbolic and making extreme statements, but I'm not joking when I say that Bailey Law was one of my favorite people. She got up, she shared about the short Eagles. When Bailey lived with us last year, it was such an unreal gift to observe her joy and excitement and energy in pouring her life out to others. Tim Keller says, the commandment to love your neighbor as yourself practically means you seek to meet other people's needs with the same energy, eagerness, and joy as you meet your own. Which, when I mean, you talk about, like, con, you know, convicting like a sledgehammer to the face of all the ways that we fail to love our neighbor. Seeing Bailey, like, joyfully, like, pour her life out was such an unreal gift. And I would come home most nights, right, being in ministry, and I'm weary, and I'm heavy laden, and occasionally, only in a minority of times, I might have been cynical and bitter about life. And Bailey was always trying to encourage me and lift me up. So when we had the new fellows, like orientation dinner, you know, one night about a month ago, some of the older fellows that live in town came. And when you walk in, you get a name tag, you're supposed to write your name, favorite vacation place for the summer, something else. And then you're supposed to write, what would the name of your um, biography be? Which is kind of a hard question, right? You're like, how do I, what, I don't know if I'll ever have a biography written about me. So what would it be called? And you don't want to sound arrogant, like a, wife, a life well-lived or whatever that would be. <laughs> and so I see Bailey at the table and she's like looking down and I, hey, Bailey, it's good to see you. And I give her a hug and she goes, I don't know what to put for that. And I just grab her name tag and, and I give it to her and I say, a light shining in the darkness. I'm like, oh, that's who you are, Bailey. Like, I've observed that in your life. And did you hear what she said? Remember, James says, like, real living faith doesn't just say, oh, you have physical felt needs. I hope things turn out, but I'm going to go over here and focus on myself. She didn't just say, I help with the Charlotte Eagles by driving across town occasionally to do tutoring or throw out a soccer ball. I moved into a refugee community. She could have taken so many other jobs that would have paid 10 times what she's getting paid. And the joy that she has I was thinking about this, and I, I didn't even know she was going to come this morning and do that announcement until Stephanie told me. But I was just thinking about earlier this week, like you can't fake the joy that she received because real saving faith shows up in every area of your life. When I was coaching high school football, we would always get really excited when, when guys that just played with a reckless abandonment, that they just, a complete and total disregard for their health. They're just crushing people. 
And we would say, oh, yeah, so-and-so, that kid is a heat-seeking missile, right? He's just taking off, bam, he's just ready to hit somebody. And we try to redirect and channel it. And I'm like, Lee Garver, one of our deacons, like his wife will send me some of his high school videos. He was a heat-seeking missile. He would just knock himself out all the time. It was great. I was showing people videos in between. But I'm like, Bailey's life, like she's a heat-seeking missile of God's love and mercy for people that are in need. And people notice it. It's evident. It's not like, and I don't mean notice it on Instagram. I mean people notice it because it just pours out. Like when you belong to Jesus, real saving faith changes every aspect of your life. And Jesus sees it. He sees their faith in terms of their friend. He sees the way faith or the lack thereof affects our life. And so listen to what he says here. This is in Mark 12. You're not going to like this, but I got to read it. Jesus sat down opposite the treasury and he watched what people did with their money, putting it in the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. A poor widow came. She put in two small copper coins that make a penny. So he called his disciples together. He said, truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who were contributing to the offering box, for they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Jesus says, listen, when you belong to me, I'm the king of kings and lord of lords. I own the cattle, excuse me, on a thousand hills. Your relationship with me changes every aspect of your life. The way you live, the way you pursue people, how quick and eager you are to be outward facing, open-handed, and generous to those in need. Grace always leads to generosity. One of my seminary professors, Dr. Doug Kelly, said this. Talking about the American church, we have imperceptibly become as materialistic as those who are not believers. And our lifestyles are no different from unbelievers that live on the same salary. I said you're not going to like it, right? You may have been thinking, oh, I got it. I got the faith thing down. I'm hoping so-and-so will listen or I'll send this to somebody else. And now you're thinking, oh, crap, I wish I didn't come. And maybe that's the very reason that you came. Not because Jesus is angry and mad and trying to like, you know, kick you in the face, but saying your heart's living in slavery. You're looking to something to give you life, significance, and security that can never, ever come through. So first, saving faith is noticeable. Second, saving faith takes place in community. It's not private. It's not individual. This is pretty obvious. obvious. These friends carry their friend to Jesus. It would be easy for us to say we got it, right? We are hope. Community church, this is the thing we focus on more than anything else. The number one thing that draws people here when we do numerous interviews is um, I was really lonely at my other church and I'm thankful I can come to Hope and we go to Barnabas, we process our story, people care about my trauma, I can drink beer and cuss and I don't get in trouble. This is great, I love it. Now y'all know I love Barnabas, second only maybe to how much I love Bailey, right? I love Barnabas. And I, love, and I think processing your story and getting counseling is a super important healthy spiritual discipline that if you have not ever done or are not consistently doing, then overwhelmingly there's a chance you're living just completely blind to your idols. So don't get it twisted. But I think that there's a danger, a danger for us that we say, hey, this is now the first real kind of safe place where I can be myself and I can really open up about struggles. And then what happens is, is it's like I feel more loved and known than ever before. But as I begin to really see other people's sin struggles, I don't know if I really want to talk about it. I don't know if I really want to enter in. I don't know if I really want to have to face the reality that other people um, have going on in their life. Now, you may be thinking, what are you talking about? 
I don't have a friend in my small group who's physically paralyzed. But every person you know, including yourself, struggles and battles with sin on a daily basis. And, and so even though we've been delivered by Jesus from the penalty of sin, the power and the war that wages in our soul takes place for all of us. And we need other people who love us enough that are willing to face reality. Sadly, oftentimes, the only time a picture like this really plays out is when someone has a really, really bad, like, substance addiction. And it gets so bad that a couple of people have to come together and say, yo, we got to talk about this thing that is destroying your life and destroying your family. But that's overwhelmingly like the minority of situations. What ends up happening more often than not is that we don't really want to love the person. And, and what I mean by that is we just want to love the relationship we have with them. By being willing to love them and say, yo, we got to talk about this thing that I see that oftentimes everybody sees is risky, especially if it's like the main sin they're in slavery to. By talking about it, by bringing it into the light, could, it could easily lead to you being rejected, to someone spitting in your face, to someone saying, how dare you, and accusing you of being judgmental and all the things. And so just so you're aware, like this is one of the biggest struggles we have as elders. I tell some of the guys going through officer training, that the elders who are commanded by Jesus to shepherd the flock, it almost feels like you're in the CIA sometimes because you hear information about what's going on in the church. Um, but oftentimes you hear the information because people come say, hey, you need to know about so-and-so is doing such-and-such. And what they're meaning is I need you to go deal with it because I don't really want to. But God in his word says, hey, one, if someone sins against you, you got to go talk to them one-on-one. -on -one. And if they refuse to listen, take a few other people. If they still refuse to listen, go to the church. Paul in Ephesians 4 says we have to be people that speak the truth in love to one another. Right? We, we all have sin that easily entangles us. And so we have to ask ourselves, Lord, am I really trusting you enough that I'm willing to follow you by actually loving someone else instead of just loving the status quo of my relationship that I have with them? I know this is unbelievably difficult which is why it requires true saving faith. It requires that we are fighting as best we can to be secure in Jesus and trust that my, my identity is secure in you and you know better than I do, so I'll follow you into the life of this person instead of just gossiping about it to everyone else and then when I feel guilty saying, well, we'll just pray for him. But be willing to say, we gotta talk about it. Remember Jesus, our gentle, lowly, humble, kind counselor, John 4 He's at a well. He asked a woman, will you give me a drink? She's at the well in the middle of the day because she's clearly been shunned by society. And so Jesus starts talking to her about, hey, I alone can give you living water that will make it where you never thirst again. And she's like, oh, please give me this water. And what does he say? Go get your husband. Immediately she drops her head. Man, this Jewish rabbi is just like everybody else in my life that wants to shame me. I don't have a husband. He goes, I know. You've had five husbands, and the guy that you're currently living with is not your husband. What is Jesus doing? He is not seeking to condemn this woman. He's saying, we got to talk about the thing that you're enslaved to, the thing that you clearly can't get out of on your own. I love you too much to just simply say, oh, here, say the sinner's prayer, and you're good. Continue to live in slavery to this. And he invites us as his people to follow him into these kinds of relationships I know they're risky. I know they're difficult, but they're so necessary. 
And then finally, saving faith is humble. It is submissive. It is trusting. Think about this. When these friends, you know, went to all the trouble to carry their paralyzed friend, you know, to the house where Jesus was, couldn't get in. They didn't give up. They cut a hole in the roof. What were they wanting to happen? Well, it's obvious. They want Jesus to heal him physically. And so the text tells us that when Jesus sees their faith, he pronounces, son, your sins are forgiven. We've hammered this for the past month. Our greatest need is not physical healing or a change of circumstances. Our greatest need is spiritual healing, to be reconciled to God and then live in dependence upon him. Every person Jesus ever healed physically will die again, but those he heals spiritually will live forever. But what happens in the, in the story? It doesn't say that these guys are like, hold up, Jesus, thank you, but this dude's paralyzed. This is the need. If you were just going to forgive his sins, we would just take him to the synagogue. No, it doesn't say anything about it. We assume, we guess that they were probably disappointed. But what it tells us is that the scribes and religious leaders were grumbling. It says they were sitting there and they were questioning in their hearts. That could also be translated, they were condemning and grumbling. They say to themselves, why does this man, notice that, right? Jesus was so well known and so popular that they dropped everything when they heard he was there to go listen to him. But now that they don't like what he's doing, they've just kind of dismissed him and put him in the camp of the other, that person, this man. They don't even use his name. Why does this man say these types of things? He's a blasphemer. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, of course, they're right. They're right that if someone claims to forgive sins and they're not actually God, that's blasphemy. And the law of Moses said they should be put to death. But Jesus, perceiving that they are questioning themselves this way, says, why do you question these things in your heart? The saddest part of this story is that these dudes showed up. They were eager to hear from Jesus. But then when he says and does something that doesn't fit their framework, they don't ask him any questions. They don't humble themselves at all. In Mark 1, it says that when Jesus and his disciples were in Capernaum, they went on the Sabbath to the synagogue and Jesus was teaching. And they were astonished at Jesus' teaching for he taught as one who had authority, not as a scribe. So they knew that this man teaches and handles the word of God in a powerful way that they had not yet experienced. But the first time he does something that they don't agree with or like or understand, instead of humbling themselves and say, help us understand, teacher, they immediately begin to condemn him in their heart. The story that takes place right before John 3.16, if you've only ever heard John 3.16, go back and read John 3, 1 through 15. Super important, also helpful for context. But it tells a story of a, a Pharisee who was a leader of the Pharisees, super high-ranking religious official named Nicodemus. And he comes to Jesus at night in this super humble posture. He says, good teacher, no one can do the works that you do if they're not from God. And then Jesus doesn't say, thank you, I appreciate you saying that. He says, no one can enter the kingdom of heaven unless they're born again. Nicodemus goes, well, how can someone be born again once they're old? But it's a humble question. And then Jesus goes on and says, well, you're a teacher of Israel and you don't even know anything. As you read the narrative, it almost feels like Jesus is trying intentionally to offend Nicodemus, and maybe he was. And over and over again, Nicodemus just keeps asking questions. He's so humble. Jesus says, the spirit alone gives life. The flesh can give nothing. And Nicodemus says, well, how can these things be? Like, I, I don't understand, but will you help me? 
We don't see that reflected or modeled here by these scribes at all. And then what's sad is even when Jesus reveals their ignorance and arrogance and pride in verses 9 through 12 when he says, what's easier to say your sins are forgiven or, or you can take up your bed and walk, and, right? What's the answer? Both are impossible if you're not God. If you say your sins are forgiven and are not God, you're a blasphemer. If you say, get up, take your bed and walk, paralyzed man, and he doesn't, it reveals you're a phony. But because of their skepticism, I mean, some commentators even argue that Jesus physically chooses to heal this man because of the skepticism of these religious leaders. So there's, there's kind of this funny debate of would he have healed this man physically if that wouldn't have been taking place? We don't even know. He says, so you can know the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. He says to the paralytic, take up your bed and go home. Immediately he picked up his bed, went out. Everyone was amazed and they glorified God. They said, we never saw anything like this. Noah's so sad in light of this. Here's the King of Kings, Lord of Lords, Son of Man, teaching, unpacking his word with unbelievable power, interrupted, and he heals an impossible disease and suffering in this man's life, and they still don't believe. This was Jesus' first clash with the people group that would end up ultimately killing him. Before we dismiss this away and say, that's not me, I want you to consider how often you get angry and furious with God. Now, don't misunderstand me. It is right and good for us to bring our desires and longings to our Heavenly Father. But there is a great difference in saying, Lord, here's my desire more than anything else. Help me to trust you versus, well, I believe in you, and then therefore you owe me X, Y, or Z. If you're good, since I'm so smart and have already interpreted my life and I know what the outcome must be, you better do this in my family, in my marriage, with my kids, with my job, with our country, with the president, whatever the case may be. Again, it would be unbelievably naive for us to think this doesn't apply to me. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity in his chapter on the great sin says, there's one vice in the world of which no one is free, which everyone hates when they see it in someone else, and of which hardly anyone except Christians imagine they are guilty of themselves. I've heard people admit they're bad-tempered, they can't keep their heads around women or alcohol, and even that they're cowards. But I've never heard anyone who is not a Christian accuse himself of this vice. The vice I'm talking about is pride or self-conceit. The virtue opposite of it in Christian morals is humility. The essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride. You know, and Tim Keller used to comment on that too and what C.S. Lewis said. And he's like, in all my years in ministry, he's like, I can literally count on one hand the amount of people that said, I feel like I'm struggling with pride. Where there's thousands and thousands of other conversations of maybe I'm struggling here, maybe I'm struggling there. This overwhelmingly, as Lewis says, is the utmost evil, is the thing that we're often the most blind to. The question Jesus poses of why are you questioning and thinking this way in your heart is something we need to consider. Proverbs says that, do you see someone that is wise in their own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. Whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool. Like friends, what that means is that our Savior who loves us and who bled and died to redeem us and who is in control, ruling and reigning over all things and promises ultimately, Romans 8, all things will ultimately work together for our good, says, hey, won't you come to me 
and, and bring me your desires and longings for your friends that are suffering, for the sin that so easily entangles in your life. But at the end of the day, lay these things down at the foot of the cross saying, Father, not my will be done, but yours. So many of the things that trigger me, that make me angry and frustrated, flow directly out of. There's such an easy, clear, obvious correlation between me and my arrogance and pride, thinking I know what should happen and what needs to happen for the good of whatever situation. And when it doesn't, when it's frustrated, I immediately go to a grumbling, complaining, condemning place. Whereas our Lord Jesus, even on the night that he was going to be crucified, withdrew about a stone's throw from his disciples, knelt down praying. He said, Father, if you're willing, will you remove this cup from me? He gave his father his desire. Father, if you're willing, will you change this circumstance in my life? Whatever this circumstance is, nevertheless, not my will be done, but yours. And then an angel of heaven appeared, strengthening Jesus. Being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Gosh, even the, the second half of that passage is so powerful that God sends an angel to strengthen his son who's suffering so that he can continue suffering for our sake. You know, when he redeemed the apostle Paul, he says, I'm going to show you how much you must suffer for my name's sake. So count it all joy. Do we have faith that is noticeable, that actually affects the way we interact with others? But at the end of the day, more than anything else, is humble. It trusts our Heavenly Father who's sovereign over all things. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we know that you are so good and so wise. And we also know that it's easy for us to say that, but then live with a frustrated, fearful, angry posture because you're not changing our circumstances the way we want. Please, Lord, forgive us. Forgive me for my pride, for my arrogance, for all the ways that I assume if you're good, you would do X, Y, or Z. Everyone that saw you nailed to the cross thought this was the worst thing that could possibly happen in human history and you were literally saving the world. So I pray that you'll grant us um, a deep sense of humility, enable us to trust you. We pray in Christ's name, amen.